The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just $15 a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. That's mintmobile.com slash switch. Hello and welcome to another special episode of Two Mr. P's in a podcast with me, Mr. P. And the other Mr. P. And we are back for one of our Chinwag episodes, the first one we've had in 2022. And we are delighted to be joined by comedian, host of the hilarious Last Leg, and now children's author, it is Mr. Adam Hills. Welcome, Adam. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. I'm okay. I'm I'm slightly jet lagged. I've only just arrived back into the UK, so I, I may fall asleep or pass out or just stop making sense at any point. So please let me know if any of those things happen. You're talking to two teachers. It's probably we're going to probably end up doing that quicker than you will. I've already passed out <laughs> twice in the introduction. Yeah. Um. So, are, are you are you sort of living in the UK, or do you? live here for work and then go back to Australia. Is that right? It was a bit of a weird one. So, so, I mean, I, I'd been living here, my wife and kids were here up until the end of 2019. And I've got two daughters who are now eight and 11 and they both right. were getting a bit homesick. They wanted to go back to school in, in Melbourne. So we kind of thought at the end of 2019, well, how about they move back to Australia? I usually film the last league about 10 weeks at a time. We live in a world where you can easily fly between Australia and the UK. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong at the end of 2019? <laughs> Famous last words. And then, yeah. Then 2020 hit and I spent seven months stranded in Australia and then 2021 hit and I spent seven months stranded here. So it's just been all over the shop for the last couple of years. So yeah. I'm not, I'm, to be honest, I, I kind of feel at home in both places now. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it? Because like, obviously Australia's sort of lockdown was a lot different to what or was it? Was it because you said you said there seven months here, seven months there. How was it? Was it much different or? Oh, it was weird because I mean, we all the whole world went into lockdown at the same time and then we all came out at the same time. And then Melbourne went into an extended lockdown. Like I think I think people in Melbourne were locked down more than any other city on the planet. Right. And then as they ended their lockdown, I came back to London, which went into another lock. Basically, I had 12 months of following lockdowns around the world. <laughs> and then, but then I've had 12 months of avoiding lockdown. So it's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a weird life. It's been a weird life the last couple of years. It's like that, you know, when you, when you go to somewhere else, and you go, oh, I've brought the rain with me. It's like you'd be like, oh, I've brought the lockdown with me. <laughs> well, and, and this most recent time when I went back to Melbourne, people were saying to me, well, you have, you've avoided it. And they were kind of like snarky at me. 
yeah. that I'd spent 12 months avoiding lockdowns. And I had to remind them, you know, I did, before that I had 12 months of lockdown. So <laughs> it, it evened out. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you've kept yourself busy because you've got your first children's book coming out. Is that, is it out yet? When, when's it released? Fourth uh, of Feb, third or fourth of February, it comes out. And it was, you, did, you know what? It was one of those things of the universe really helping me out because I'd been going back and forward on a deal and, you know, hoping that I'd get a contract to write this kid's book. And I'd written a few chapters. And then literally, I think it was the first weekend that we all went into lockdown, the deal came through. Yeah. And it was like, well, I know what I'm going to do with my lockdown now. <laughs> which, which lockdown then, was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the, so the first lockdown and the big long Melbourne lockdown, I wrote it. Yeah. But then when yeah. the when the editing notes came in, which there were plenty of, as there always are, um, it coincided with me having to do two lots of hotel quarantine in Australia. So the hotel quarantine for me became like a like a an enforced writer's retreat where I just <laughs> locked myself in a room for two weeks and just wrote. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, in a way, it sort of works. It's nice to have a sort of focus during those times. Um, so it's called Rockstar Detectives. Yes, which is an unusual. Well, I mean, being a comedian, where does that, where does the rock star detective sort of influence come from? Well, first of all, what's yep. what can people expect from the book, and then we'll get into the the inspiration behind it. So, okay, so it's a it's a mystery. It's a it's a detective novel. Um, it's about two twelve year olds, uh, Charlie and George. Charlie uh, becomes a viral singing sensation online. Um, because George filmed her and kind of put it up online and kind of produced it. And so she ends up doing her first ever tour at the age of 12 and takes George with her as like her social media manager. But everywhere they perform, uh, a priceless piece of art is stolen and all of the evidence makes it look like they did it. So they've got to go through, try and get through the tour, but they've got to solve this crime and work out who's framing them in order to save their careers, basically. So right. that's the story. It's yeah, uh, and George, of course, is a wannabe comedian uh, right. with a disability in a wheelchair. So I mean, where that inspiration came from, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the character of Charlie, who is who inspired that? Well, the whole idea for the book came about because my daughter, my eldest daughter, who was eight at the time, so I. <laughs> I'd had an idea. I think the thing happens when you're a comedian, you get to a point where you don't care about your audience anymore. You just want to make your own kids think you're funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's really hard. You know, I mean, my, I, my kids will watch the last leg and they're like, daddy, I don't know any of these people you're talking about. And I don't <laughs> care. Why don't you just do TikTok dances? Yeah. It's so, crazy. And so we were, I was on a family holiday in, in Paris years ago. And my youngest at that stage was maybe three. And instead of saying merci beaucoup, she kept saying mousy beaucoup. Yeah. And my first thought was, well, that's, that's a character for a kid's book. I'm going to write a book about mousy beaucoup one day. (laughs) And then, so, but I never got around to that. And then my eldest one day said, kind of out of the blue, she said, daddy, when I grow up, I can't decide if I want to be a rock star or a detective. 
Nice. And I was like, well, there's a book waiting to be written, a rock star detective. Yeah. So yeah. really the, whole, the, the idea for it came about because I just wanted to try and impress my own daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and is she read it? Is she enjoying it? Well, here's this. So I started writing it. Um, and then, of course, of course, the character of George came in because, you know, she needed a sidekick and I wanted it to be someone with a disability, but I wanted it to be someone whose disability is like a superpower like yeah. whose disability makes him a better detective. So he notices things because he's on a lower level in a wheelchair. Right. And there's, I wrote one scene in it where there's a chase. He's actually chasing after someone. And because it's going downhill, he's quick, like he's quicker than someone who w- wouldn't be in a wheelchair. So it's kind of almost his superpower. And of course, you know, being wanting to be a comedian, that just came from me as a kid, <laughs> always, yeah. you know, thinking of jokes. Um, but so my daughter, so as I was writing it, when I started writing it, I would send her chapters or, or I'd, if when I was home, I'd say, oh, here's the next bit, here's the next bit. But of course, once you, once you write your first draft, the editors go, actually, we think this should change. And you go, yeah, actually, that's a really good point. That should change. And like, for instance, it's about two 12-year-old rock stars and stupid me, I said it in a primary school. <laughs> and the editors are like you know 12 year olds go to high school right and i'm like oh man I thought that <laughs> so so you have to make changes along the way and then every now and then my daughter would go oh i really like this bit daddy and i go oh sorry i had to change that and she was like oh why are you changing it <laughs> oh sorry the editors and eventually she got so sick of the edits that she just went you know what i'm just gonna wait till you finished yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just send it to me when you're finished i'm sick of all these changes yeah. So was it the bits that made your daughter laugh? The editors were like, <laughs> nah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's that's a great thing about having kids that are in the in the demographic, to to use a proper marketing term that I don't really like. But to to, to have having kids that are in the age range that the book is for, you know, the, you, there would be moments where the editors would go, oh, I'm not sure that a kid would say this. And I'm like, my daughter says that like five yeah, times a day. Yeah. So, yeah. and to be honest, my daughter even had a hand in the design of it because I would send her the cover or I'd send her some of the illustrations or the way it was laid out. And she's very particular. She's 11 now. And she'd be like, no, I don't like that font. Like she was literally really? picking up on the font. <laughs> <laughs> and so the great thing is I could then go back to the editors and go, I'm not sure about the font. And they go, oh, kids like this font. Oh, no, nah, not my uh, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like your daughter should have been the editor. Okay. Or oh, the editors gave you an easier ride. Well... I mean, some of her suggestions weren't right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted more deaths, to be honest. Did she? Kill yeah, them all. Yeah, she was really disappointed when I said no one died. Yeah. They love it, kids <laughs> at that age, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, she'd been, I think the reason that she, she'd said rock star and detective is she was reading a, a series of novels by Robin, Robin Stevens called um, uh, Murder Most Unladylike. Right, yeah. And there's there are you know deaths multiple deaths in those books and but there's something about being that age and being a kid where you go i know this is a story i'm not gonna i'm not gonna read too much you know i'm not gonna take it to heart yeah so i think i've I've started writing the second book and it looks like someone's trying to kill the main character and my daughter's very happy with that (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's funny when they get to that because i've got um 10 year old triplets and we were talking the the other day on the podcast like they've started to discover swear words and right we're getting to and and the sort of like what am i allowed to say what can't i say 
And that's just a whole world of, yeah. Like they said the other, what the, one of them tried to get around it the other day by saying to the other one, will you just F off? But didn't say the word, said F off. Right. So then I was like, yeah, but the intent, <laughs> the intent is there. You might as well have just said it. And then he was like, I, but I did that. Then he got upset because he thought he was in trouble. But you get that. You get that at schools, don't you? When, when people put that finger up and even though it's not the correct bird to flip, you know that the intention, yeah, yeah. you know exactly what they do. I didn't swear those words. Just like, hey, yeah, yeah. that's enough for that. So, yeah. Well, there's, see, I, I tried to teach my kids from a young age that it's something that we do when we're writing jokes is that nine times out of 10, there's a funnier word than the swear word. Yeah, yeah. If, if we've got, you know, often the swear word's the first thing that comes out when you're writing a joke. Yeah. But for me, especially when we're working on The Last Leg, if we've got time to then go back and look at it, I'll look at the writers and go, all right, what's funnier than that F word? Yeah, yeah. Because like I said, nine times out of 10, by not swearing, you can actually come up with a better option. So I've tried to teach my kids that, and I'm not sure I'll, that it's working. I'll take that. I'll see what the kids think of it. <laughs> think of a different word. Yeah. I mean, they were, they, were, they were looking at swear words that aren't actually swear words the other day. So, so they were, what was the one that the mother brother or mother's brother instead of mother, you know what? Ah, right. right yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was yeah. confused for a minute. Mother, uncle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uncle. Uh... You mother's brother. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I mean, how obviously as a comedian, you'll write your shows. How different was that writing process to writing a children's book? Was it similar or a completely different? More swearing for the children's book. Similar in the sense that a good joke, the best jokes are the ones where you come up with the punchline first and then you work your way backwards from it. Right. Um, and funnily enough, I've, I've watched my eight-year-old do this the other day. She said something about, uh, I'm trying to think, she was talking about a doctor, but it kind of, she mispronounced doctor and it kind of came out doctor. And then I saw her pause and she clearly realised that the punchline was doctor. Yeah, yeah. And I watched her work backwards and I could see her little head going and she went, because she loves, she loves coming up with jokes, the, the youngest, and she went, Daddy... And I went, yeah, she went, what do you call? And I was like, all right, here comes one. And I could see her trying to work it out. And one thing I've taught her when writing jokes is don't use the punchline in the joke. Yeah. Like say, like whatever the word is. So I could see her, her first, I could actually see her thinking, what do you call a dog that's a doctor, a doctor? But then yeah. she, then she censored herself and went, no, well, don't say doctor in the setup. So she went, what do you call a dog who likes operating on people in surgery? I went, what? And she went, a dog turn. I was like, bang, I love what you've done. <laughs> like, so, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so in the same sense, after I'd written about three or four chapters of the book, I then wrote, I wrote the chapter where they work out who the culprit is that's committing all the crimes. Yeah, because I thought, right, if I've got that, if I know what that is, then I know where I'm heading. So I'll go back and I'll start heading towards that. Um, and so in, in a sense, it was like stand up in that way. Um, yeah. In another sense, though, there's a there's a author called John Niven, who I've become friends with. Um, not not kids books. If there are any kids listening to this, please do not read any of John <laughs> Niven's novels. They are nowhere near appropriate. 
but he quoted another author saying that, and I think it was something like that writing a novel is a bit like driving from London to Glasgow in the 70s, um, because you set out full of confidence, knowing where you're starting off from and where you want to end up. And then about two thirds of the way through, you're absolutely lost. There are no signs, <laughs> there's no lighting, and you don't know how you're going to get there. Yeah. <laughs> but you keep pushing forward town by town and eventually you can see the lights in the distance and go, oh, I can get from here to there. There we go. Yeah. So, but in, in, in another sense, as far as writing, it's not really, it's not really about writing punchlines. It, it's finding funny ways to describe things, I think. Yeah. So it's not, it, it, it's different to stand up in that way that you're not trying to go set up and punchline. You're trying to create a conversation that that sounds like people are just saying funny things or observing things in a funny way. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it is a different world, but I've actually really quite enjoyed it. Yeah, and has it always been something you've wanted to do, or was it something you were approached and you thought, oh, this might be a good? Um, I was approached. I mean, look, comedians writing books apparently is is quite a marketable thing at the moment. Thank you, David yeah. Williams. You've really <laughs> <laughs> Williams, Bedil, uh, Harry yeah. Hill. They've really like cleared a path for the rest of us. Um, and it hadn't really, yeah, I hadn't really given it that much thought to be honest. And I'm so glad that I did because it's especially during lockdown. But I've just yeah. I've, I've come to really like these characters. Like I really like them, like they're real people. And um, when I'm on a roll writing, I just enjoy going into the world that I spend with them. I know that sounds really kind of pretentious and writery, but no, like sometimes no. I'll, be sitting in, I'll be sitting in writing and, and there'll be a conversation between them and I'll think, oh, I didn't expect them to say that. Like <laughs> it's not, it feels like it's not even me that's saying it, it's just coming out of my fingers. Yeah. Um, or if there's a sad moment, I'll find myself really tearing up as I'm writing it, going, God, what a, wow, that is really affecting me. So, yeah, it's been lovely. It's been a lovely little parallel. If you get, you know, if you get, if you get like that now, if you get like that now, don't be putting all the deaths in that your daughter want, or you'll be a mess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not another one gone. <laughs> and, and I mean, with, with, with you being a comedian, did you feel any sort of pressure to try and make the book? funny or was that not really a, and it just happened as you were writing it or did you feel like this is what people are going to expect no 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 that's really interesting it, it, it i felt the pressure of trying to make kids laugh yeah because that's that's a different pressure altogether and and you know kids can be very critical um of of anyone that's trying to be funny yeah. <laughs> or of anyone generally, I'm sure and, you're all And very that. blunt at the same time as well. They don't sugarcoat yes. anything. <laughs> we have a, we have a feature on the podcast, which are like ultimate teacher burns of things that children say to a teacher, which might even be well-intentioned, but will completely ruin a teacher's day week. Right. And, and you would not believe, I mean, I put a post on my Facebook page, I think last week saying, have you had any more? And there were, over, I think, nearly a thousand comments from teachers. Wow. Just the things the kids say, which just completely <laughs> ruin ruin them yeah. without. <laughs> and the children are oblivious, I, you know. Right. I had one line going through my head a lot when I was writing this, and it was, so David O'Doherty is a comedian and a really good friend of mine, um, but he's also written children's books. And he would talk about, 
uh, on stage about doing a reading of one of his children's books and um, halfway through or 10 minutes in, one kid just put his hand up and David said, yes, you've got a question. And the kid just went, does this get good soon? <laughs> <laughs> and I had that in my head a lot when I wrote this. And in fact, one of the first, <laughs> the, the, the first chapter the first first chapter, because I rewrote the first chapter about three or four times, but the first first chapter, I was thinking, right, what's a, what's a joke that kids will like? What are they like? And I put a fart joke in there really early on. Yeah. And uh, after uh, probably on the second or third draft, I took it out because I, it just seemed gratuitous. It looked like a grown up <laughs> trying to make a kid laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Putting your hand under your armpit but writing it down. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, what I ended up doing was I saved the fart gag for two thirds of the way through. So it doesn't look like I'm too Once desperate time too early. To, to brew. Yeah. I was gonna, I'll tell you what, I'm already, I'm, I'm already looking forward to the sequel, Death and Farts. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that, I mean, that's the sort of pressure we're under as teachers. I mean, teaching it, that's the sort of feedback we get during a lesson. What you're saying there about your friend, does this get good? That's yeah. what we're having to, <laughs> having yeah, that's, to deal that's with a daily battle, yeah. when you're teaching some of the most random, you know, teaching eight-year-olds about sedimentary and igneous rock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. So. Well, certainly, I mean, I... I the first draft of this book was, I think, and I'd said to the editors, look, I, I know this is going long. And they said, that's fine. Just send us what you've got. So the first draft was 62,000 words. And then they sent back 37,000. Right. Which is quite a massive edit to just go, yeah. no, no. <laughs> and then now that I'm writing the second book, I'm aware, just get to the good stuff. Just, yeah. you don't, yeah. you know what I mean? Get to the yeah. action, Get keep the kids you know, going. turning chapters. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned the character of Charlie. Um, and I mean, you're obviously a huge advocate uh, for disabilities and you have recently been recognized with a, an MBE. Is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shot. yes. It was kind of, okay. So I'll be, I'll be honest, Alex Brooker and I on the last leg, yeah. Every year would come back for a new season and joke about the fact that neither of us were on the Queen's Honours list. Right. And he'd be like, I was looking, I was hoping, I thought <laughs> surely this year, surely. Um, and then I was kind of like saying, look, I'm not even sure that I'm eligible because I'm an Australian, so I don't think I can even be awarded anything like that. And then beginning of December last year, I got a, I got a letter in the mail with um, on Her Majesty's service written on the front. Wow. And I thought, well, I mean, this could be something to do with the new James Bond movie. <laughs> um, and I've, I've also, I've presented um, uh, Duke of Edinburgh Awards a couple of times, one at Buckingham Palace, one at St. James's Palace. So I thought maybe it was something to do with that. And then I opened up the letter and it was, you know, you're being recommended for an MBE. Do you accept? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to say yes to that. <laughs> but what was lovely about it um, was that it was for, although to be honest, until it was announced, I was still partly thinking it was a prank. Yeah, it was a wind up. Like, this is definitely a wind up. <laughs> um, but be because it was for services, I think it was services to Paralympic sport and disability, 
I really took that to heart and I felt really proud of that. I think if it had been one of those, you know, services to the arts or services to comedy, I would have been like, oh, oh, really, lads, come on, come on now. Um, And what's actually really lovely about it is that um, the Australian of the Year has just been announced. So every year in Australia, on Australia Day, they announce the Australian of the Year. And it's just been announced this year as a guy called Dylan Alcott, who's um, Paralympian, uh, wheelchair tennis player, first person to win a golden slam, which is every every Grand Slam plus a um, Olympic gold medal or Paralympic gold medal, um, and and I, I kind of know Dylan. You know, I've been watching him at the Paralympics, and I've done yeah. stuff with him in the past. And just just the idea that I'm in England and I'm picking up an MBE for disability awareness, and he's in Australia and he's been named Australian of the Year for what he's done for disability yeah. awareness. It just feels like it's a real. You know, I feel like he and I have kind of maybe achieved something together. So, uh, and and also it, it it feels really good for people with disabilities. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm kind of really proud of that. Yeah, yeah he should be absolutely. Amazing. As, did Alex get one as well, or no? <laughs> He's really dirty about that. <laughs> that's gonna be. <laughs> that's gonna First be. The reunion. This. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is it going on the front cover of the book? No, the books, the books, I've got it here. The books already been printed. I'm going to have to put MBA in the next one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but I mean, I did, I did message Alex when it came out and then I said, oh, I'm so gutted that you're not there and I'm really sorry that I didn't tell you ahead of time, but, you know. Um, but we'll be FaceTiming you as, a, as I'm kneeling and just, you know. Uh, I think his response was, don't worry, mate. Uh I'm not expecting one. They don't give out knighthoods for banter. <laughs> uh, good stuff. So, I mean, obviously the, the, the work is, I mean, it's well-deserved and everything that you've, you, you've done. I mean, for anyone listening, do you think there's any, what, what else would you like to see or what more can be done? Uh, especially because most of the, most of the people that listen to our podcasts do work in schools or work w- with children when it comes to sort of perceptions around, disabilities or anything that you can say or even if there's a message to children or parents of children who do have that what what is there anything and and I think we've come a long way um Mm. but obviously there's always more that we can do so is there any sort of message or anything that you think needs to get you know needs to be spread further I think just visibility does it does it all you know from from the Paralympics you know I remember in 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 London in 2012 there were kids that would would you know literally hack legs off off Barbie dolls or off action figures or would run would strap you know cardboard blades to their legs and, and run like Paralympians and I think just the more you see disability and especially for kids because kids don't question it do you know what mm. I mean? And kids yeah, don't yeah. feel self-conscious. You know, a 10-year-old is going, yeah, I, I wish I had blades. Or, yeah. you know, my, took my daughter to, to watch wheelchair basketball and she was like, I wish I was in a wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think exposing kids to disability really early, and, and I don't like the word normalising because it makes it sound like something isn't normal in the first place, but just having them around people with disabilities and getting yeah. used to it and accepting it. And that's... For me, that was a big part of this book. Like George's disability doesn't hold him back at any point. Yeah. Um, 
there's a there's a moment earlier on where he and when he first meets Charlie, they have a bit of a face off because she catches him filming her, and she kind of walks straight up to him and gets in his face and towers over him. And I wrote a line in it like, he was really impressed because most kids were too scared to confront the kid in the wheelchair. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get that across that. Do you know what? Treat them like anybody else. Like, you know, if, if, if you're angry at the person in the wheelchair, good. Don't hold back just because they're in a wheelchair. That's being patronizing. So for me, and, and then also, like I said, what I wanted to do with the book is, is show that his disability could be an advantage. Like it could actually help him as a, as a detective, but it could actually give him almost like his own special powers. So I guess just the more kids are exposed to it. And I think a really good example of that is 20, uh, 2017, I think it was, or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was 2017, the, yeah. the World Para-Athletics Championships were in London. And yeah. I took my daughter and one of her friends along to watch. And my daughter is so used to being around people with disabilities, whether it's me or Johnny Peacock, who's been to our house and, and or, or just watching the Paralympics, yeah. that she was like, oh, this is awesome. This is great. And her friends, who hadn't been exposed to disabilities that much, was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! Who, who, who knew that disabled people could do stuff like this?" And we're like, yeah. "We all do. <laughs> we all." <laughs> and it was it. It just made me realize that not everyone's had the experience with disability that my kids have had. But when you do, yeah. then it just becomes like, "Yeah, that's fine. It, it's it's not an alien thing." So I guess for me, it's just visibility, just visibility yeah. and awareness. Oh, good, good. Yeah, no spot on. Um, so your school days, uh, we talk a yes. lot about uh, school on the podcast. So you went to school in Australia. I mean, when you, I when you, when your daughters were here, they went to school in the UK for a while. That's what you said. Before. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, how did you find that? How different was it to school in Australia? Were there I mean, many differences or was it a case they... that, cause you said you, your children got homesick. Was it a case? you didn't want them going to school in England anymore <laughs> because maybe the, you know, the teachers weren't quite up to scratch. <laughs> um, the only main difference I found for them was pr um, pronunciations. I remember my, my eldest had to give a, um, like a school assembly presentation and they were all talking about food groups or something like that. And she said, I'm trying to remember which one, which word it was. Oh, she said pasta instead of pasta. And I heard the whole assembly snigger. <laughs> and she said, um, and then she said vitamins instead of vitamins. And they definitely started to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the difference that when I, and when, but when I think about when I went to school in Australia, the differences were okay, I'm pretty sure this has never happened to anyone in England, but I do remember one day when I was in about uh, maybe year three being told like certain kids being allowed to go home because there was a bushfire near their parents house really and i was like okay tracy bassett yeah you can go um kathy edwards yeah you can go like it's fine but your mums are here to pick you up because um <laughs> you probably can't go home after school yeah. <laughs> um or yeah. if it was i remember there was a point where you'd get sent home from school if it was 38 degrees Right. Okay. So I if it think, was too hot. Yeah. I think with yeah. air conditioning, that doesn't happen anymore, but certainly, I mean, there's a specific feeling that you would only get in Australia of being such a hot day 
that your back would sweat and virtually stick to the back of the chair through your shirt. Um, Now it's probably more hats and sunscreen. Yeah. Like sunscreen outside every classroom. So you've got to put that on before you go out in the playground. Everyone has to have a hat on. Um, And of course, honestly, the biggest thing that none of my kids could get their heads around and I still can't get my head around, but English people can't get their heads around about Australian schools is we have our summer holiday, our big summer holidays in December. Yeah. I know. So the kids break up on like the 20th of December and they don't go back until the, the beginning of February. That's crazy. So you have long, you have longer. Do you have long? Is that longer? Uh, uh, it's about the same. About the same. same yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I, I like that though. I like that though, because obviously you, you pig out over Christmas, don't you? And then, you know, you, you, when you go back to work or when you go back, when you used to go back to school, you were at your, your biggest you know, you're at your most <laughs> Yeah, right. You give yourself two weeks just before going back in Australia to get yourself yeah. a bit shredded. Yeah. <laughs> and I but bet then- January is a completely different concept because at the minute it feels, you know, straight back into school after Christmas. I know what are we on. It feels like the 98th of January. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's never ending. Whereas if you were off the whole of January, it'd already be over, you know. It'd go like, well, it'd and go then like of course, a flash. In Australia, the school year starts in February. So right. like my kids are starting a whole new school year now um, rather than like, it just seems ridiculous that you would do that in September. Why would you do that in the middle of the year? That makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever. Um, I don't know. But then the other side of that, as someone pointed out recently to me, someone who had spent time in England and in Australia, the advantage of having your holidays in like July, August is that, you don't have Christmas and New Year's to like that first week of holidays in Australia. First 10 days is mad because you got like you got break up for the end of the year and then you got Christmas, then you've got New Year's and then you can actually relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas here, once it's holidays, that's it. It's relaxing time. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, and that's why I like the Christmas holidays is always a, 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 a draining one because it is so full on. So it's like you finish for Christmas of course, have your family yeah. Christmas it's then new year and then you're back in school and you sort of feel like you've not even had time to chill out and rest right. and you're straight back into it you've just suddenly grown an extra chin you're just like what <laughs> where's, <laughs> where's this come from yeah. <laughs> and you have to get through the grueling month of, of, of January and it's not even like we've had a the, the interesting thing now is like obviously you pray for a snow day around about yeah, now yeah, yeah. like peak winter yeah but even if we did, have, the weather's been rubbish, and it. But even if we did have a, a snow day now, you won't be able to enjoy it because of the pandemic and remote learning. It'd be like, right, everyone on Zoom, we'll do our lessons on Zoom. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. There's no excuse anymore. So <laughs> yeah, even if we have a snow day, if it starts snowing, it used to fill you with excitement as a teacher because you'd be pray like, right, snow day here. Yes, yeah, we'll get. We'll, we'll have a, yeah. now if it starts snowing, I, I panic thinking, oh, we're going to be on zoom for the day <laughs> getting, getting the yeah sort of flashbacks to peak lockdown trying oh, to get six-year-olds to sit on a screen oh nightmare oh nightmare. my god yeah so what was what was your like favorite subject at, at school when you were at school oh my best subject was maths when i was in high school right um, and it's surprising the amount of comedians who are really good at maths. Dave yeah. Gorman, uh, Dara O'Brien. Yeah, yeah. There's some, yeah, there's something about the maths brain and working out an equation that kind of fits nicely with comedy. 
Um, I wonder if there is a link, a, a link there around sort of that, you know, what makes a good joke, there being a sort of formula to... Do you think there is or is it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think... Um, and not every comedian's like that. I know some comedians, uh, say someone like Ross Noble or someone like Billy Connolly would just write five words on a page and that would be enough for them to talk for an hour. Yeah. Whereas for me, even now when I write out my set list before a show, it's a lot like when I used to have to do a maths equation that would go, would take two pages. I, it, yeah. it starts here and it goes here and it ends up here and it kind of, yeah, I'm very methodical about the way that I, I set out my routines. And I, like I said, I, I know people like Dave Gorman and Dara O'Brien are very much like that. Um, so was it my favourite? Probably was my favourite just because I, it, it, was the, it was something that I really clicked with, to be honest. And was that down to, a, was that down to the actual subject or was there a particular teacher? Well, it was both. We, I, had, I remember having one teacher in high school, Mr Chisholm, um, and I remember one parent-teacher night, and he was a really good teacher generally anyway, but I remember one parent-teacher night, and because, I, look, I was, I was a pretty diligent kid at school. I was well-behaved. I did all my work. I did all, you know, everything I was supposed to do, yeah. and there was one particular parent-teacher night where normally my parents would come home and they'd go, well, everyone said you were great and well done. But my mum said, hmm, Mr. Chisholm basically said, uh, Adam's flexing his muscles at the moment. And, I, <laughs> and she said, when I asked what that meant, he said, he's doing the work he has to do, but no more. He, if he pushed himself, he could be excellent at maths, but he's only doing what he has to do. He's just flexing his muscles. Yeah. And I was, I got really narky about it. I was like, right, I'll bloody show you. I'll show you how much I can do. And of course I excelled in maths after that because, right. you know, I had someone saying, look, it's not just enough to do the work, go be, go above and beyond, do, do, do even more work, get better at it. Um, and, and so I think that's, to be honest, I've taken that into my comedy as well. Yeah. You know, I've, it's not enough just to come up with a good joke. How do you make it better? How, how can you fine yeah. tune it? How can you polish it? Mr. Chisholm has played a blinder there on it. He's just, he's, <laughs> yeah. planted that, he's planted that seed. He's planted that seed and then he's got you riled up and then you've ran. I bet he's just sat there going, well done, son. <laughs> <laughs> See, the thing is, if, if, if our parents came home and said that, we like you would have been. I'd be buzzing. I'd be like, yeah. yes. He says I've done something <laughs> right. At he's, least he's not mentioned my chins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. He does the bare minimum. It would just be. He does bare rubbish. Like, yeah. Just absolutely <laughs> yeah. So and and what was there any like the opposite end? Was there any subject that it was the complete opposite? You just hated. Yeah, strangely enough, that again in high school, the, the subject that I didn't click with was chemistry. And when it came down to formulas and like the mathematical formulas of what happens when you add this and this, it was fine. But the theory of it, the kind of explanation of what goes into it, I just couldn't get my head around. And I remember our chemistry teacher used to have a term for, <laughs> for what we were doing when we were being imprecise with experiments. He would call us bucket chemists. He'd say, gentlemen, we are not, we're not bucket chemists in this classroom. We measure, measure correctly. And 
as as much as Mr. What what Mr. Chisholm told me, I've taken with me in my comedy career. Um, the criticism from and I can't remember the name of the chemistry teacher. I've taken with me when I cook at home because I am definitely a bucket chef. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely a oh yeah that looks about right i reckon yeah. we can chuck a bit of this in that'll do that'll i just do. I, I imagine you're using it like when you've sent your draft off for your book and then they've gone oh i don't like this bit like oh you're just a bucket editor <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame I, I, <laughs> sorry go on oh no funnily enough the mathematics uh, brain has come in very handy with the book because I've been very precise about word counts. Have yeah. So I set myself when I had to write it originally. I worked out how long it was. Gonna, well, actually, it's okay, okay. So I, what I was going to say is I worked out how long I had to write it and how many words I'd have to write per week and what that came down to per day. But also now that I think of it, when I used to have to write a show for the Edinburgh fringe festival so that would yeah. be the end that would be like my grand final right i've got to get a, a show ready for there and i'd usually do it first at the adelaide fringe festival which was in march so the edinburgh would finish at the end of august i'd have maybe five months to write 50 minutes worth of material which is 10 minutes a month which is two <laughs> and a half minutes a week which is whatever that is per day. Like say you're working five <laughs> days a week, that's like 30 seconds a day. <laughs> so I would literally at the end of the week go, good, I've got my two and a half minutes this week. I can keep building on that. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. There's no bucket comedy going on. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking when you were saying about like with the maths and the comedy, it's just like H-A cubed. <laughs> 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 honestly i could i could show you a set list and i've shown it to people occasionally if they've come to a gig i normally have a set list in my back pocket i don't look at it but i just just knowing in fact that was something that i'm gonna say it might have been one of our geography teachers um said the best way to study is to write out you know, write out whatever the information is that you need to remember and then condense that to one sentence and then condense that to a bullet point. Yeah. And by the time you've done that, you've kind of got it into your head three different times and it's all in bullet points. That's kind of how I do with comedy. So my set list will just have, I don't know, it might say um, positive, shoes half full, disability rugby league, tackle, cerebral palsy, blah, blah, blah. Each one of those pertains to a joke. And if you were sitting in the audience with that set list, you could tick off every joke in order for right. an hour because yeah. once I once I know what the first one is, it'll all be there exactly afterwards. Yeah. Oh, and so I mean, it's interesting to know how much of you what you learn at school has then gone on to because obviously it's not a subject you learn at school being a comedian, but it sounds like there was quite a lot you did at school that has helped you with what you've gone on to do. Yeah. And there was, and same at university. I went to university and I studied to, um, I was studying journalism, but it was, it also covered film production and radio production and editing and all that kind of stuff. And even to the point now when I'm hosting the last leg, not so much last leg, to be honest, but if it was a pre-recorded show, yeah, I will give the producers edit points. So if I ask a question to this person and I know their answer is probably not going to make it to the edit, then I'll leave a pause afterwards and I'll look back to the cameras because I know that the producers can edit there. So when I started out, there was another comedian, an Australian comedian who, who went by the name of Ostentatious. Um, and his advice to me 
because I think I was at university when I started doing comedy. He said, read everything, learn everything, because the more you learn about, the more you can be funny about. Yeah. yeah and every now funny. and then I'll get like a friend or someone at a gig or, you know, an acquaintance saying, oh, my son wants to be a stand-up comedian. What advice would you give him? And especially if it's someone who's still at school or at university, my advice will always be learn everything because the more you learn about, the more you can be funny about. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, someone who's like in year 10 might think, I don't need school. I'm going to be a comedian. I was like, yeah. no, dude, you need school because you're going to be a comedian. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's great advice. I was expecting, oh, my kid wants to be a comedian. Any advice? Don't be a buckethead. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> well, no, even funnily enough, I was talking to my daughter last weekend in the car and she was saying how she wants to be a comedian. I was saying the same thing. And I was kind of going, just learn everything because, you know, you might be 30 and then someone goes, oh, I've got this comedy panel show about nuclear physics or whatever. You're like, I can do this. You look at, I mean, Dara O'Brien's the perfect example. Dara, yeah, Dara yeah. can host a show with Brian Cox about the wonders of the universe because he was he studied mathematics at university. So, yeah, the more you know about, the more you can be funny about. Yeah. yeah. And do you find, I mean, like when you're doing your comedy, is, is, there, is there many differences between sort of audiences here and in Australia? So, like, if you write a show, do you have to adapt it and change it so that it's more... Or is there much difference, you know, if you make a joke about a celebrity here, is it going to then carry over to Australia or do you have to change much? I mean, usually when I'm writing a show, I'm thinking, is this going to work in the UK? So I've kind of got that in the back of my head anyway. Sometimes there'll be a reference, like if it's a pop culture reference or I've, I've got a bit in the new show about, how to explain um, trans issues to, to people who aren't across it. And in Australia, I use, the, I use the example of an iced coffee ad because iced coffee ads in Australia are really in your face. Get an iced coffee, drink it, come on. Um, <laughs> but it's just not, that's, that bit's not going to work here because yeah. iced coffee ads don't have the same thing. But um, apart from audiences are definitely different. Yeah. Um, and I've, and I used to live in Ireland as well. I would explain it to people by saying, imagine, imagine getting up on the bar in, a, in your local pub and going, hey, everyone, I've got a joke. <laughs> like the reaction to that is what audiences are like around the world. So if in, like, in Australia, if you did that, the audience would be like, yeah, well, better be funny. Yeah. <laughs> if you did that in somewhere like London, it'd be like, all right, but make it quick. I've got stuff to do. Yeah, yeah, and if you did that in Ireland, they'd be like, "Shut up, everyone! The man's got a joke." And when you're finished, I've got a joke as well. <laughs> and in Scotland, <laughs> get down, you knobhead! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And like, even in places like Newcastle, <laughs> you know, you could make the generalization that if you did that in Newcastle, you'd probably get someone that offered to fight you. <laughs> but that's kind of what a Geordie audience used to be like. When you played the comedy club in Newcastle, they would throw about five punches at you heckle-wise. And if you could withstand them all, they're like, all right, this guy's all right. Yeah. <laughs> we, what, yeah, tell you guy. what, this guy's pretty funny. You've got to listen, man. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, had, we've had that experience. So we've been touring the podcast and we did a show, right. in, Newca we did a show in Newcastle and it was Larry. 
It was Larry. Yeah. yeah. 200 teachers in the room with yeah. alcohol. I mean, there were some of them being carried out. One, one had passed out. One had been sick on herself. <laughs> and as, we, as we're like performing our show, she's getting like carried out by the bouncer. And obviously it was only our third show. Yeah. And it was proper like, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is Geordie Shaw territory. Yeah, it was. It was eye-opening. And I, I, I still don't think it's been topped for... Yeah, just the, how Larry, yeah, yeah and, and yeah, how drunk. Because yeah. there, there was a point where in the show, I sort of say, have we got any head teachers in? And normally quite a few people put their hands up and, you know, and it's fine. In Newcastle, yeah. there was just one teacher or one head teacher put their hands up and literally the whole audience turned around and were like, Boom! <laughs> and we were like, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, they're just doing, they're like ready to, ready to. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Throw a few metaphorical punches. But like I said, if you can withstand them, they're like, yeah, this guy's all right. We like him. Yeah. So I did, it, I did one in, sorry, I did one in Belfast when I first started out and I was the support act and I can't remember who the headliner was. And the audience laughed at the first couple of jokes and then they just talked for the next 10 minutes. Right. And afterwards the venue owner said, oh, next time you can come back and headline. And I was like, why? Like they talked through my act. <laughs> and he went, oh yeah, the audience in Belfast turn up to watch the opening act die. And when you didn't, they got bored. Really? <laughs> so they started chatting. <laughs> he said, and that's how I know you're a good comedian. <laughs> I bet that was like a weird, a weird kind of celebration. Like, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got bored because you were good. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdest compliment. <laughs> oh, good. Um, what was it? I was uh, so the, you got you say you got a new tour. Uh, go it. No, I haven't. All right. Gone, so I did this. I did a new show uh, at the Melbourne Comedy because of the whole the way COVID's been. Um, I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival just under a year ago. So, yeah, April 2021. And then yeah. I did a couple of shows in Sydney, a couple of shows in Canberra, came back to the UK, everything went on hold. So I'm not entirely sure when I'm going to get to do a, a live show again. So I think I think that's the other lovely thing about writing the book is that all my comedy has just been diverted into that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm sure I'll get around to the live show again at some point. But at the moment, it's it's, yeah, it's all about the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your what was your what would you say was your funniest story from your school days? Because that's something we always share. We get so many listener stories, and then whenever we get a guest, we ask the question because everyone's got a story to tell from school. Do you know what? I was trying to think of funny stories from school, and the only the, the first thing that came to me was one of the first bits of stand-up I ever did that worked. So I, when I started doing stand-up, I was 19. Yeah. Um, which, which feels like the regular age for starting to do stand-up now. But in, in this is 19, 1989 in Sydney. I was pretty much the youngest. I think there were two of us that were 19 and everybody else was in their 20s. So I was really, really young for someone yeah. doing stand-up. And I, the first gig I did, I did a couple of sex jokes. I did probably a song parody. It was pretty average. And I remember... Was everyone listening? On... Is that when you knew? This isn't going well. No one's, talk, <laughs> no one's talking. <laughs> it was just... 
oh, it was your standard 19 year old doing sex jobs. Yeah. And I remember walking off stage and hearing the compare say something like, isn't it funny that the guys that do it the least talk about it the most. he got a massive round of applause and i thought yeah that's a really good point and then (laughs) (laughs) they're cool mate they're cool and so after about two or three more gigs and i i remember filming myself once and my dad wanted my mum and dad watched it and my dad was like that's just filth and i was like yeah it is and a few other comics older comics that were around just went just talk about you you're 19 and you live at home with your parents talk about that kind of stuff everybody else is doing sex jokes you don't need to do what everyone else does so the first routine that i ever came up with that actually made me go oh this is what i should be doing was about school and it was basically the routine was um I'm trying to remember how I got into it, but it was something like the, the worst thing that could happen to you when you're a teenager was being dropped at school by your parents. Cause I used to get the bus to school yeah. but every now and then if it was ra- really rainy or if it was foggy or cold, you know, one of my parents will go, Oh, one of us will drop you to school today. And I'll be like, Oh no, <laughs> no. Cause there'd be that moment where they pull up out the front of the school and all your mates are there looking at you like you got parents. Have you? Um, <laughs> And there'd always be that moment where you'd get one foot out of the door and you just hear, where's my kiss goodbye? And you're like, oh, come on, I'm 15. Give me a kiss. All my mates to here on the lips. So Is this your mum or your I'd dad? Talk. Well, that's the G. Yeah, so this, that was where I was leading to. I'd go, well, there was one day where I just went, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm like, so I stuck my tongue in. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, it was the last time dad ever dropped me to school. <laughs> and it was just that story and that that kind of progression of an embarrassing moment and a twist. Yeah. And it turned out to be my dad. And like, that was the first joke story that I told on stage that I went, oh, this is what I should be doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was clean. There was no sex talk. And it was about something that was genuine to me. So that's, yeah. that that story was the that was was kind of the moment I went right now. I know now I know what I should be doing more of. Yeah, that's, that's uh, quality. Do you think that? Do you think that compare from the first like gig you did is watching all your success, your MB now and just like I burnt him once, <laughs> I got him once. <laughs> <laughs> well. No, I hope not. I hope what he's saying is I set him on his way. Yeah. yeah. If it wasn't for me, yeah, yeah, he'd still be talking about sex like everybody else. <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, right, we'll we'll wrap it up with one last question. Um, this is a question yep. we ask all of our guests. Um, if you had a time machine and you could travel back to meet your ten-year-old self, what advice mm-hmm. would you give them? I mean, it's a, that, that's a really weird, I, it's a weird one because I wouldn't want to change anything that's happened because I'm really happy where I am now. Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like a roll of the dice. It's like, okay, you can keep your MBE <laughs> or you can go back and gamble it all and hope you might get an OBE. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if, I've, if I could tell my 10-year-old self anything, it would be try out for the Paralympics. Right. Because that's the only genuine regret I have is that when I was about 12, 
my mum said, oh, you've been asked if you want to try out for the disabled games, as it was referred to then. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not disabled. Like I've got, I've got such a, t- a small part of my foot missing that, well, two things. Firstly, I thought, well, I'm not disabled. If I'm, if I'm going to play tennis, I'm going to, I'm going to win Wimbledon against able-bodied people. I don't need to play yeah, against yeah. disabled people. But then my second thought was I'm only missing a tiny bit of my foot. That's not fair. You can't put me in a race up against people who've got no legs at all. Not, not, and at the time I didn't realize there were different Paralympic categories. Yeah. yeah. And it was only when I went to the Paralympics in 2008 to cover it for Australian TV that I went, Oh my God, none of these people think they're disabled. They're all, they're all just, you know, humans competing at the best of their ability. And I kind of look back on that to think what the Paralympics has become now to think, Oh, I probably missed a really good chance there. If only I'd not let my pride get in the way. Yeah, I yeah. could have actually competed at the Olympics because I was really sporty. Like I was, I was a pretty good runner. I'm, I'm still a pretty good tennis player. I coached tennis. I played A grade against right. able-bodied people. So, yeah, that's probably the only thing I would say to my ten-year-old self: do everything else the right yeah, the yeah. way you're doing it, but have a crack at the Paralympics as well. What What would be the event? You, would it be tennis? Is that what you you? So, what What would you want to have done, or what do you think you were good enough to have done? What possibly at the time, if there had been a, a version of tennis that wasn't in a wheelchair, I might have played it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I was even even after two thousand and eight, I was asked if I wanted to play wheelchair tennis, and I just thought it's. I, I know how to play tennis, but I would have had to have basically started living in a wheelchair just to get used to it. Yeah. So. I think when I was 10 or 12, if there'd been a version of standing tennis that I could have played, I probably would have done it. Um, if not, like, this is me talking to my 10-year-old self, dude, do anything. Yeah. You know, I now know that I, I was a fast enough runner then that I could have sprinted at the at the Paralympics. I now know that I'm a good enough, I was a good enough swimmer. Yeah. Because I, I only swam against able-bodied people. All the other kids that I swam against or ran against had two legs and two arms. So, yeah. Now I know I could have gone back and, and swum or ran or, or done whatever. But, um, but you know, on the other side of the coin is had, had I done all that, I might not be as passionate yeah, yeah. about the Paralympics now. So, yeah, yeah I, th- I, think I'm, I think I'm not going to gamble and I'm going to stick with the MBE. <laughs> <laughs> did, you fi- did you find that as you were growing up, you sort of went on a bit of a journey in accepting your disability or did did you go through a period where you felt like you had to prove yourself or did you have a sort of journey through that of acceptance or was it always the case that you knew what it was and you didn't want it to stop you doing anything or yeah I I was quite defiant I would never let it stop me doing anything I kind of didn't even refer to myself as disabled because I thought it was such a tiny bit of me that was missing that it it wasn't even a disability yeah um i remember having a moment at school where at high school so of course we used to wear shorts to school in the summer that makes sense yeah. but i used to pull my socks up to to cover the the prosthetic because it went to my knee and i was because i didn't want to be mocked for my prosthetic but what ended up happening was i was being mocked for having my socks pulled up because no one else had their socks pulled up <laughs> so i looked like an idiot so eventually i thought well i'm gonna to have to i'd rather roll my socks down and just own the prosthetic than have my yeah. socks pulled up and look like i'm you know one of the goody goodies 
And I did, and that was a real turning point for me because I owned it. No one mocked me after that. No one made any jokes about the leg. Um, And I kind of went, right, I'm going to own it from now on. But as far as owning the term disability, I genuinely don't think that happened probably until 2008, until I saw the Paralympics. Really, right. And probably more so 2012. Yeah. I think the London Paralympics, when the GB team came out, fireworks went off, David Bowie's We Can Be Heroes played, and a full stadium stood on their feet. I I feel really bad because that was the first time I went, oh, yeah, I I do want to be disabled, actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I am going to call myself that from now on if that's okay. Because they, they seem to be the <laughs> just throw the so, socks yeah, away. Get away. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never so worn has... socks since. <laughs> so it has been quite a journey, and yeah. a lot of it has been pushed along by the Paralympics. Yeah. So yeah, maybe you know, maybe there's another thing. Maybe if I had have competed at age twelve or fourteen, then. I would have seen that earlier on and had a different view yeah. again, but, um, uh, but yeah, that's, and that's, that's why I love the Paralympics so much because it, every four years, it just, it's like this little explosion of a disability awareness that happens yeah. somewhere on the planet, whether it's Tokyo or Rio or London, and it just gets bigger and bigger every four years. And yeah. what it does for people with disabilities is immeasurable, but what it does for able-bodied people is also immeasurable. So, you know, I'll always, I'm so glad that I, that I found the Paralympics. Yeah. yeah, And I think the the last leg does that as well. It carries on that legacy, doesn't it? That was, it was born out of the 2012 Paralympics and, yeah. you know, still going strong now is, uh, is, is great. It's, it feels like every four years we get a reminder of where we came from yeah, and yeah. what we're about. And we can stop being cynical about the government or, you know, world news or whatever American politics. And we can just sit down and just enjoy disability sport again yeah and it's yeah. like a, it's it's like a little refresh button for us where we go oh yeah this is what we do yeah 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 so when's when's the next series last leg is that happening soon uh on at the moment so this friday is the first episode back right okay so um, have you we, so how often how does that work do you feel it's live isn't it so you film it for the next yeah, well, so we film it. Weeks. We film it live on a Friday night. So right, bro. It's it's kind of a weird one whereby we we basically have Saturday, Sunday, Monday off. I do a couple of hours. I have a meeting with the producers on a Tuesday, and then we write the show Wednesday, Thursday, and then on a Friday we're in the studio from midday or midnight. Right. Um, yeah, and live to air. So it's um, I think we've got three series this year. Right. Um, and then yeah, you know we're already penciled in for Paris twenty twenty four Paralympics. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much for giving up your time. We really, really do appreciate it. So Rockstar Detective is out on the 4th of Feb. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Where else can everyone find you? Follow you on Instagram and... I'm on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Adam Hills Comedy on both. Uh, I've got a website, adamhills.com, but I haven't really updated it and I should. <laughs> but yeah, the book, book it, web designer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really bad at this. Um, but the book, the, I think the book's available. Um, there's signed copies that you can buy at Waterstones and WH Smith. So it's out there. Right. Amazing. Well, Massive good luck with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, sure it'll be. I swear there'll be children in my school. I'm definitely going to get my, uh, my management team to order a batch because I think even just hearing about it i think the children will absolutely love it 
Uh, so congratulations oh, awesome. again. Yeah. 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 And uh, we'll put a link link to the book in the in the show notes as well. But yeah, no, thank you so oh, so much. Really, really do appreciate it. All the best for the book. I'm sure it'll be a it'll be a, a, a fantastic. Hit. Yeah, it'll be a yeah. massive hit. And like you say, having that visibility, the more that children can read it and familiar, you know, it's only going to be a good thing. So yeah, we I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Who knows? Thank but you cheers, very much. thanks for the chat. I really, really enjoyed that. That was really oh, good. Thank fun. you. Cheers. Right, Adam, got a question for you. Go on, shoot. What is better than eight free beers? Oh, there doesn't seem much better than that. I'll tell you what's better. How about 10 free beers? <whistles> That's right. The festive season is upon us. And in the spirit of goodwill and giving, Beer 52 are offering listeners 10 free beers. All you have to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash 2-2-W-O. And cover the five ninety five. That's five pounds ninety five for postage to claim your free case. What's more, do it before the seventeenth of December and get two extra beers. Well, Beer Fifty Two is a beer club like no other. They send experts around the globe to find the best beer available anywhere. What a job! I know. How do you get involved in this? Shout Dream stuff. Up. Shout me up, Beer Fifty Two. <laughs> Each month, their members receive a new case, usually from a different part of the world. Members have had beer from more than 40 countries across five continents. I know, and you can grab yourself this treat just in time for Christmas so you can impress your friends, family and dinner guests. If, like Adam, you're not into the political chat, chatting about this, that and the other, you can now sound really intelligent, just like Adam did. That's the most... That's the most clever thing he said in the whole time of us p- recording this podcast, that I, paragraph. I would agree, and because I didn't realise there was five <laughs> continents. <laughs> and now he can also talk about the hoppy IPAs, the crisp craft lagers, and the sumptuous stouts. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can simply choose a light option. As well as all the delicious beer, you'll receive Ferment Magazine which delves into the beers, breweries, and themes. You'll also get two delicious snacks to wash down with the beer. What's not to love? I can just imagine Ferment Magazine featuring in lots of class libraries after the festive period. After redeeming your first case, you'll join the monthly beer club, £24 a month. No minimum commitment for that. You can pause or cancel at any time. So just head to beer52.com forward slash two. T-W-O and get your free case today.